This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. Hello everyone, this is Flo. And this is Jesse. Welcome to our monthly episode of the Great War Channel Supporter Podcast. We're excited to be here. We are. Um, we will do something a bit different this month and start with some production notes. We realized when we while we were doing the planning for the next few months and also years. I don't know if you saw that we announced that we will cover the war until 1923. We realized during that research that there are so many interesting topics to cover that happen simultaneously, especially now in the upcoming summer 1919, that we needed to streamline some things about the videos that we're publishing. So the basic gist of it is Every video that will come out every two weeks now will have one main topic that is related to an event that happened exactly 100 years ago. So we're going pure, hardcore content in the episodes. Yes, exactly. Um, as an example, in the upcoming month of May, the first main episode will be about Italy and the, the crisis in Paris, so to speak, the Italian situation in the Paris Peace Conference. And the second episode, which has been suggested and asked for by quite a few patrons, I might add, uh, will be about the so-called polar bear expedition, uh, which relates to the Americans that were stationed in Momansk and in Siberia. Right, and uh, we're going to do a little bit of a, a little bit of a catch-up um, because, as our Patreon supporters might have noticed, we started talking about January in the episode that was published in February. So what we're going to do this month is we will do a one-time catch-up so we're back to the, the full real-time approach. And the Italy crisis at the peace conference uh, takes place in April. When we talk about the polar bear expedition, uh, we kind of connect it to the arrival of the British reinforcements in May who've come there to replace the Americans who are now going home. And once we get that uh, caught up, we'll be able to go back to our real-time roots. Exactly. That will mean that right in the time for the big episode coming about the Treaty of Versailles, which was signed in June, we will be uh, synchronous, so to speak. And you can always look forward to find out what happened exactly 100 years ago. And the channel will be very easy to follow. Uh, we also added the months that we are covering to the thumbnails. Probably we'll add them to the YouTube titles as well now that I think about it. And then everything is very easy to understand. Um, we, what we won't do anymore is uh, answer direct questions of Patreons on screen um, in terms of directly quoting the question. But what we will do is we take the questions from our Patreons as suggestions for topics to cover and then um, if we do that, we will thank the Patreons for the suggesting the topic 
uh, in the episode in the end. And we will also answer some more questions from the community in the podcast here. Um, the very short gist of this very long story is this channel follows World War I from 1914 to 1923, 100 years later in real time, and you can enjoy a wild ride. It's been wild from the inside, so it's going to be wild and fun from the outside too. Exactly. So with that production stuff out of the way, let's jump into the history that we talked about this month. And we, as we said, we will talk or we talked about Italy. So what, what is there to say about Italy? Well, um, I feel like I say this on every podcast, but like it's complicated. Yeah, you know? <laughs> usually it's, history tends to be complicated. It's, it's true. Well, at least if you think long and hard enough about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. There, there were a bunch of different things that struck me when I was researching this episode about Italy. Um, some of them we're gonna we're gonna touch on in our expert uh, interview, which which we'll mention later. But sorry, some, someone is playing bowling uh, in the uh, apparently here. Um, yeah. So one of the things that I thought was interesting is that by the spring of 1919, there's been this sort of big buildup of rhetoric and expectations in Italy about what are we going to get, how many different territories. They, they now want more than the Treaty of London from 1915. They want Fiume. And when I say they, uh, it's not always quite, quite clear that that means all the tens of millions of people in Italy, of course. Um, but that's something we will get to a bit later. But um, when Orlando and Sonino are in Paris, behind closed doors, they're actually a bit more flexible than that. Of course, they want to they get as much as possible out of the settlement, but they were even both, according to some sources, there's a bit of difference in the details uh, between different historians' publications on this, but essentially, to some extent, they're willing to swap. They're willing to give up on certain parts of the deal to get Fiume or willing to give up Fiume as a part of Italy, if not allow it to be a part of Yugoslavia, to have it as kind of a free port in exchange for a chunk of Dalmatia or whatever. So there's, um, behind closed door, there's a little bit of flexibility there that in public they never admit. I mean, Orlando's rhetoric is really over the top. I chose one or two quotes about it for the episode, but some of the stuff about, you know, Italy being the successor of Rome and all, all these kinds of, uh, let's say, historically difficult to justify claims are things that he feels he needs to maintain in public and uh, that don't really 100% reflect his real uh, assessment of the situation. And I kept thinking about just how difficult it is to kind of, um, once that Pandora's box opens up, of using it as a political tool to mollify the, the right-wingers in Italy, the extreme nationalist right, you can't really walk that back very easily. Without losing face. Uh, there was a lot, about, a lot of talk on the episode about once you come out with your position very openly and aggressively, you can't go back without losing face, so to speak. Right. I mean, on the one hand, if diplomacy takes place only behind closed doors, you can say, well, this isn't good. This is kind of secret diplomacy of the type that 
Wilson was trying to eradicate and that led to... Which he tried to eradicate, but then... But then, yeah, also engaged in it as well. Yeah, um, yeah it's, it's rhetoric, uh, I think, uh, mattered in this situation. And when the rhetoric got extreme for reasons of political convenience, it became extremely difficult to solve the actual problem. And uh, I suppose our viewers can come to their own conclusions about whether that still applies in today's politics, but I certainly think it's a, it's a lesson to be learned. Yeah, I, I thought so too. I thought it was fascinating. I didn't know much. As with a lot of the topics that we talked about, I didn't know, I, I know some broad strokes about the situation of these countries. Like I knew Mussolini and D'Annunzio that the, the and the early fascist movement that this got traction in early 1919 much as it did in Germany for example but the nitty-gritty details and the uh, and the what I also really find interesting is um, and you can see that the world a hundred years ago was already very interconnected and modern and uh, uh, that th things happened in Paris and in Italy simultaneously and that there was a lot of um, probably a lot of train rides uh, going on. Um, a lot of telegraphs going uh, back and forth. Telegraphs and newspaper articles and public debate and, and everything. And this kind of like how this uh, was kind of a much more accelerated pacing for these kind of uh, situations as, uh, for example, during probably during the uh, Prussian Franco War. The Franco-Prussian War. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, um, with, without getting much more ahead, uh, I think someone who knows even more about this topic uh, because she studies it extensively um, is Dr. Wanda Wilcox and uh, we recorded an interview with her earlier uh, and through editing magic you're going to hear that right now. So today we're joined by Dr. Wanda Wilcox who is a historian specializing in Italy and she's worked on Italian morale during the war and is now working on the peace conference. So we're going to talk a little bit about Italy's post-war experience and how that played out in the peace conference, uh, which we talk about in our episode for April. So, Dr. Wilcox, why don't you uh, give us a sense of what the state of the feelings, what the mindset is in Italy uh, towards the end of the war and take us on a little bit of a journey as to how that turned into um, such, such dramatic rhetoric uh, that ended up having influence on the positions taken at the peace conference. Hi, yeah. Uh, so by the end of the war, Italians are have very high expectations. The war has gone on a lot longer than they anticipated. When they joined the war back in 1915, they were still optimistic it would be reasonably short and reasonably straightforward, maybe a year at most. They hadn't anticipated, I guess no one had anticipated it would go on quite this long. And certainly they hadn't anticipated the, the levels of casualties. Now Italy's had a, a pretty tough time of the war. It's had in total more than 600,000 dead, uh, about 1 million uh, seriously wounded, perhaps half a million permanently disabled people by the end of the war. So the, the casualty rates are very high. The economic costs of the war are very, very high as well. And because of that, there's a strong sense that they need to be able to show something for their effort, basically. Um, they've gone into the war for very specific 
territorial reasons. The idea was to complete national unification by adding the territories of Trento and Trieste, and that you know, Italy wouldn't really be complete until those lands had been incorporated. But because the war has been so much worse than they anticipated at the start, that no longer seems like enough. And so there's a direct link between the level of suffering experienced in the war and the expectations that people have when the war finally comes to an end. And if in 1915, when the war began, many of the general public and especially working class people, rural people, didn't necessarily know a lot about the war aims. By the end of the war, that's really changed. Especially in 1918, there's been a huge propaganda effort by the government to get people more on side with the war, to encourage support. And they've done this campaign of what they call patriotic education. And the aim of that really was to get all sectors of society across the country really committed to this goal of expanding and of incorporating these new countries. So there's actually more um, nationalistic fervour, if you like, by the end of the war than there was at the start. That might seem paradoxical, but um, the way that the Italian war effort has gone um, leads to this, this kind of outpouring of nationalist fervour right at the very close of the conflict. And... Um how just how widespread was this nationalist fervor i mean which parts of society were tended to feel more that way and and which parts of society if there were any do we maybe overlook a bit because so many of our written sources newspapers and public speeches and so on um kind of trend towards the public and government uh, interpretation of the of the nationalist revendications yeah this is a really interesting issue certainly at the start of the war that nationalist enthusiasm is relatively limited it affects uh, middle and upper class people men especially there's a really clear gender difference that that women tend to be less interested than men in the in the earlier period um, and it is something which we see predominantly in the big northern cities by the end of the war it definitely has spread i wouldn't want to say all italians get caught up in it but it's certainly spread through the country but it's still stronger among urban educated middle class people than it is among rural communities i think one thing that's interesting though is that soldiers even from very poor rural or working class backgrounds have very much been indoctrinated with this some of this propaganda they may not take it all on board but they will have been exposed to an enormous amount of propaganda um, including non-written sources lots of visual sources lots of uh, you know cartoons and postcards trench journals and speeches being constantly given explaining why the war was being fought and encouraging them to see a strong link between winning the war and gaining new territories so even people from a very uneducated background would still have been exposed to those type of ideas and so do you think that that might be that that focus in within the military on this message might have played a role in the types of support that Mussolini had when he sort of founded the fascist party, let's say, in, in March of 1919. Most of the descriptions I've read of that initial period really emphasize the presence of war veterans and Arditi, and he himself was a war veteran, so was Danunzio. Um, how, how did that play a role, that particular target group? 
Uh, absolutely, this is this is really important. Um, although I would hesitate, uh, incidentally, about D'Annunzio as describing him as a veteran. I mean, he kind of is, but he's fifty. He flies around in his plane, getting in the way. He's not doing anything right. very he, useful. He was involved yeah. in some contact, but yeah, uh, yeah combat, absolutely, but yeah. absolutely. Um, <laughs> so uh, the most of the studies suggest that around fifty percent of the early fascists are veterans. Um, the other 50%, roughly, are um, teenagers who were too young to serve in the, in the war. In other words, they're, they're boys who spent all their school years expecting to serve, all that teenage um, period, ready to serve, and then the war ended kind of before they got their chance. So it's either people who see this as a, a continuity of their former service or as an alternative because their chance to serve in the war was, was almost snatched away from them because the war ended too soon by this vision. So, yeah, um, the military aspect here of spreading nationalist messages is really important. But that said, the majority of those early fascists are either from speci elite specialist units like the Arditi, and that's a self-selecting group who were partly recruited for their nationalist spirit, so it's, it's a bit circular. But a lot of them are also junior officers, um, or at the very least middle-class educated men. They're not mostly coming from... Um, the poorer categories of society. But yeah, the military has been a very important uh, space in which these propaganda ideas could be spread. Actually, that, uh, that really reminds me of an episode, of the first episode we did of our 1919 series where we talked a little bit about the Freikorps in Germany mm -hmm. and how um, quite a large proportion of... Um, of the people involved in the Freikorps were, you know, officer cadets who hadn't got to the front yet yeah. in 1918. Yeah. And they also, feel kind of cheated. Yeah, and also naval personnel from the German Navy who hadn't really seen any action or much action during the war and were kind of chomping at the bit yeah. uh, to prove their manhood and, and those, kinds of, uh, those kinds of things. Um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a great comparison. Um, now let's maybe let's uh, transition a bit more towards the peace conference. Um, one thing that struck me reading about it was just how, of course, it seemed to the actors at the time that that there's no easy uh, solution. And sometimes when you look back uh, at these kind of cases in history, you sort of you, despite yourself, you have a little bit of uh, hindsight is 2020, and you think, oh well, if they could have just done this or done that, it might have worked out differently. I didn't really fully have that feeling uh, when I was reading about this. Do you think there's anything that, I know this is a counterfactual and historians often are not such fans of counterfactuals, but what, let me frame it this way, what options do you think there might have been at the peace conference that weren't really exploited in order to avoid the kind of crisis and maybe lessen the feelings of, uh, of betrayal or of a mutilated victory amongst the Italians? It's a very difficult question, um, but it's an, important, it's an important question because arguably, if there had been less of that sense of the mutilated victory, less of a sense of betrayal, it would have significantly weakened Mussolini's position and perhaps made it significantly harder for fascism to come to power. So it's, it's a question that's worth asking. Could things have been done differently and avoid that uh, that quest for, for revenge, that sense of, of kind of victimhood that they cultivate? Well, 
I guess my answer would be yes, but it would have been doing wrong to someone else and creating a problem somewhere else instead. I mean, what are your options? You give them Fiume or you give them large chunks of Yugoslavia. What's that going to do to Yugoslavia? If you imagine that the Italians had been given all of the land that they hoped to gain, then they're going to have large Slovene and Croat populations living under Italian rule. They're going to become a new irredentist campaign for the new kingdom of Yugoslavia. There's going to be a different kind of nationalist agitation and potential war. Um, another alternative, uh, which isn't investigated as much as perhaps it could have been, would have been to meet the Italian claims elsewhere. So Italy wasn't only interested in the Adriatic and the Balkans. It had a lot of colonial ambitions. It wanted all manner of things. Uh, in Africa, in Asia Minor, it has all these very ambitious plans for what it would like in the Eastern Mediterranean. And um, that's a more interesting question in some ways. If, say, France and Britain had given Italy some of the mandates in Africa that they took for themselves, that could have been a way to appear to be sort of appeasing that Italian uh, desire for, for, for increased power, that, that sense of the need of compensation. Um, but that's never really considered at all by, by France and Britain as an option, although it's something that the Italians were quite interested in. I don't know, in short. I mean, that's not a great option either, because why should Italy be given large chunks of Africa? It shouldn't. So <laughs> there is no good answer here, basically. Um, what is clear is that uh, France and Britain are pretty impatient with Italy right from the start. Wilson has no time for any of this because it all goes directly against the 14 points. And so Italy is extremely isolated at the peace conference uh, right from the day it begins. Um, well, on the topic of, let's say, non-European options or issues, talking points, Asia Minor is is one thing that uh, we don't focus on in the episode because we wanna we want to talk about the Greco-Turkish War and the Allied occupation of Turkey in a in a in its own episode. But Absolutely. This this is one of those areas where I was thinking to myself, well, okay, so the Italians do send troops and occupy mm -hmm. areas in in southern uh, Anatolia on the Mediterranean coast. But then Lloyd George wants to limit their presence there, so he invites the Greeks. I mean, there are other reasons uh, for, for the Greeks coming. And, but um, from what I read, one of the motivations was to limit the Italians there. So is this a case of the, the Western Allies really sort of double shooting themselves in the foot by resisting the Italian requests at the peace conference for, for the Adriatic borders and then also uh, kind of blocking them with the Greeks in Asia Minor? Um, well, arguably, yes. Uh, this is also a great example of Britain doing what it seems to do best, which is promising the same thing to multiple people in a way that is just not going to work out. If you look at um, the promises that Britain makes during the war about the Middle East, you'll see this as well. So in 1917, the Italian government finds out about the Sykes-Picot Agreement and the carving up, the, the, the proposed future carving up of the Ottoman Empire. And they're absolutely furious because they were not in on the deal. 
And so all through the spring of 1917, there's a lot of toing and froing and a lot of Italian um, outrage. And eventually a new deal is made at Saint-Jean-de-Maurienne, it's called, um, in late April 1917, at which a large um, chunk of southern Turkey proper, southern Anatolia, is promised to the Italians. And they initially have enormous demands. They don't quite get all of what they'd hoped for in this treaty. But they get promised a very significant quantity of territory, including, critically, uh, the city of Smyrna, or Izmir as it is today. But then, secretly, Lloyd George has already been, or the British rather, have already been informally discussing with Greece how Greece should have Smyrna as early as 1915. So... This is, you know, Britain promising Smyrna to two different people. It's not even their city to to give, and they're promising it to two different people. So when the war ends, Lloyd George turns around and says, oh, actually, the Saint-Jean-de-Maurienne agreement isn't valid. And the excuse that they use is that the Russians never ratified it. Well, the Russians can't ratify it because the Russian government that would have been an ally no longer exists. So this is not a very convincing reason to the Italian mentality but the British and the French just sort of shrug their shoulders and say no sorry none of that applies out of the kindness of our hearts we'll let you have some of this stuff but don't think that you can insist on that treaty which is supposed to be a legally binding agreement so the Italians are pretty outraged and offended about that um Lloyd George's decision to kind of offer Smyrna to the Greeks, uh, first of all, this is typical because Lloyd George was very strongly pro-Greek in general. He's a close personal friend of, of Venizelos and he sees promoting a Greek policy in the Eastern Mediterranean as absolutely the way to go. Um, so partly it's, it's more or less to be expected, but it is a direct violation of a treaty that he himself had signed two years earlier. So you can understand why the Italians are pretty annoyed about this. So that's why they send troops, because they fear that if they don't get some troops on the ground, they're not going to get anything. They no longer trust the Allies to live up to either the spirit or the letter of, of the treaties that they've signed. So they think they need to deploy this occupation force to Anatolia in March 1919, because if they don't start physically grabbing stuff, they'll get, they'll get nothing at all. And of course, they end up with nothing. Right. Um, yeah, That answer kind of encapsulates a part of the ethos of this period, which is uh, no one trusts anyone and there's total chaos. Yeah, basically. Um, <laughs> on the topic of trust, I wanted to uh, jump back from Asia Minor to Paris because you mentioned, and this is all over the place in the literature, of course, the tense personal relationships between the big four and their respective sort of delegations. Um, I kept having the feeling that of this old question in history, right, whether it's the structures and circumstances and forces that are having an influence here, or whether it's psychology and personality and decision making and leadership. Um, do you think that, that uh, these more personal factors of personality, of language, because Orlando was not so comfortable in English, Uh, did they play a role in making this situation harder to resolve? I, I remember one particular incident where I think on April 20th, Orlando is so distraught that he actually bursts into tears. Mm -hmm. And 
the British especially are aghast at this behavior <laughs> because naturally such a thing is absolutely not possible. And Outrageous. one of the British delegates, I, can't, I think it's Hanky his name, uh, basically wrote later that uh, if his son had ever shown that kind of emotion, he would have just given him a good hiding. Yeah. <clears throat> yes. Um, uh, yeah, you wouldn't have fancied being Morris Hankey's son, I don't think. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, it, it, there are cultural differences here, clearly. Um, the language barrier is important. Orlando barely speaks any English at all, and that means that he and Wilson have no language in common, because Wilson speaks no French. I mean, uh, Orlando's French is good, but he can't get by in English. And the fact that a lot of the discussions between the four leaders take place in English, because Clemenceau's English is good, does put him at a disadvantage. He struggles to follow. Uh, there's a line he has in, in his memoirs about, oh, you know, finally today I understood a joke that Wilson told for the sixth time. Um, uh, so he's not joining in the, the more informal side of the conference. His foreign minister, Sonino, does speak English. Uh, so Sidney Sonino is a really interesting character. His mother was Welsh. You might be thinking Sidney is not a very Italian name because his mother was Welsh. And um, and he does, of course, therefore speak English. On the other hand, Sonino uh, is an incredibly annoying personality. Everybody hates him. He's one of those really buttoned up, totally inflexible, my way or the highway kind of guys. And um, he really gets on everyone's nerves. So nobody wants to include him either. But he's the one who has good English. So um, he also is from a different political party than Orlando. So Orlando and Sonino are not working well together. They have different ideas about what Italy should be trying to ask for at the conference. And they have different agendas when it comes to domestic politics back home because they're from different parties. So the Italian delegation has all of these internal problems as well. It has this language barrier, um, especially once English rather than French becomes the key language of the conference. And there's certainly cultural barriers as well about, you know, how do you behave? It's really interesting reading the, the accounts of the conference. Um, a lot of the leaders and of the delegations are meeting each other informally a lot. They have working lunch and breakfast. Sometimes they go to concerts or they have tea together or they, you know, they're hanging out. It's Paris in the spring. Um, I'm in Paris right now. You go to the park, you have a picnic, all of this stuff. They're not doing, the Italians are not doing that. All the other delegations are mingling. Sometimes it's fraught, of course, but they are at least mingling. The Italians kind of sit in their hotel and, um, and don't socialise. And that doesn't help either. There's no chance for uh, kind of informal contacts that would have perhaps helped some of the other delegations to sympathise more with the Italian position. Because when you read what the French or the British or the Americans are saying, they're just fed up all the time. They're really, the Italians want this, they want that, they're so unreasonable, they're so demanding. The Italians are not very good at gathering sympathy for their position. The press cannot sympathise with the Italian position either. And the Italians really, what they ought to have been doing was going on a kind of charm offensive to try to explain to people why they were asking for the things they wanted, what the mood back home in the country was, um, emphasising the huge effort, the huge war effort that, that, that Italy had made. I mean, Italian casualties are roughly the same as, uh, Italian deaths are roughly the same as British deaths in the war, right? But instead, Italy is seen as this minor bit part player. But it suffered just as much as Britain. And uh, the Italians don't manage to win anyone over to sympathise with their position. And I think that's where the personalities really come in. Uh, 
I think the structural forces are what they are and whoever you've got in charge, you can't change that. But in terms of actually getting other people to to maybe understand where, where you're coming from, clearly the delegation that goes to Paris does a very poor job. Yeah, and I think uh, the topic of Caporetto was raised a couple of times as a bit of a cudgel with which to beat the Italians. I remember Clemenceau telling a story where he said, yeah, I'm not very interested in giving much to these guys who I think the, the English translation used the word scampered away at, at Caporetto. And, you know, that's really unfair because what happened to the French and British armies in March 1918? You know, they retreat just as far. They come just as close to disaster during the spring 1918 offensive. And then they sort themselves out and they go on to win. So why is it okay for the French and British to have this major retreat and it's not okay for the Italians? That's certainly the Italian point of view. The Italians are constantly furious. Why does nobody ever talk about the fact that you guys also retreated 100 kilometers or whatever um, <clears throat> and had to sort of panic regroup and then the Americans come in and help you? You know, to the Italian mentality, that looks very similar to what happened at Capueto. Yes, we had a disaster, but no, we did not fall apart. We didn't have a revolution like the Russians. We didn't have mass indiscipline and mutiny like the French in the spring of 1917. Why is everyone on our case? And um, it's not exactly the same, but I, they have a point, I think. Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, there, were, there were quite a lot of surrenders, though. There were something like over 200,000 uh, Italian soldiers surrendered. Uh, you they probably are know the capture and, capture and surrender are two slightly different that's things. That's true. No, that's true. You're right. A large number of them are captured either when their officers surrender, in which case the men have very little choice, or when their officers are dead and they have no idea of what to, to do, basically. Um, yes, there's panic, there's a lot of running away, but most of the people who run away actually return and sort themselves out. And it's often um, represented in the British or the French scholarship nowadays that it's the arrival of allied troops that stops the retreat but that's yes, just I've read that true. several times it's not true the line stabilizes fully a week before any french or british troops turn up and in fact both um the french and british military commands make that very clear they say we will not put our men in the line until the italians have stopped retreating because if we do we risk getting caught up in the retreat so we will not sacrifice a single man until the italians themselves have halted this and they do and i think this is this misrepresentation of caporetto has lasted down to today even in some very eminent historians works and that actually dates from the time that that view of how the italians performed on the battlefield yes they made terrible errors but so did a lot of people that view of, of italians as being uniquely incompetent is a view that politicians at the time propagated and has been a very influential view that a number of surprisingly respectable historians have still uh, been unable to free themselves from I get a bit het up about this. <laughs> <laughs> I can see. Because actually when you when you go and read the sources, including British and French sources who were really on the spot at the time, you get quite a different picture. Yeah, and I think that idea of Italian incompetence uh, grew during the Second World War as well, but that's a whole of other course. A whole, And a of whole course other people apply that 
backwards uh, they you know they they use that hindsight and they say well of course we know from world war Two that that's what they're like and they they sort of retrospectively put that onto the first world war what about the role of diaz because uh, he's kind of a figure who doesn't come up all that much in the discussions about the post-war but he seems to have played a pretty significant role in um Stabilizing the in, in stabilizing the, the line, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's a very interesting character. He He's really the opposite of Cadorna, his predecessor. So Cadorna was aristocratic and aloof and wouldn't delegate and had all these very kind of 19th century views. And Diaz is, um, first of all, he's a southerner. He's not from the northern elite. He's very kind of solidly middle class rather than aristocratic. And he wants to learn from experts, listen to other people, delegate. He, he has a very different managerial approach. And um, he's not a soft touch by any means, but he's much less irrational and he gets rid of the more brutal parts of the Italian system. So he's he's a very successful manager as well as a good leader. And he does, of course, lead the Italian delegation, uh, the Italian military delegation in Paris. Um, but unlike Hadorna, he's not particularly politically motivated, it seems to me. He's, he's very much a military man in the sense that he believes that the army's job is to to do its job, but he's quite willing to work with the civilian authorities. Whereas Cadorna didn't want to listen to the civilian authorities, he just wanted to go his own way. Diaz sees the army's role in supporting what the elected government says it's going to do. So he's um, he's less hands-on. I dread to think what Cadorna would have tried to do if he'd been in charge in during the peace conference. Mm. Um, maybe let's skip uh, from the wartime years back to the post-war period. One question I didn't get to a little earlier was um, just who is arguing uh, a different position for Italy with its post-war claims. Mm -hmm. I, I remember reading about one incident in particular that I thought was so so cool that I, I actually mentioned it in the, in the um, documentary series episode, but there's this one instance where I think a former minister, Leonida Bisolatti, is giving a speech about why Italy should only demand areas that are uh, majority Italian-speaking. Now, that in itself is, of course, difficult to identify, but he wasn't demanding South Tyrol. He wasn't demanding, you know, big chunks of Dalmatia, where there are mostly uh, speakers of Croatian. Um, and he was shouted down by this nationalist crowd and Mussolini was in the crowd and so on. Was he sort of the lone voice because, or, or was there actually a, a party of, of minimalists, let's say, uh, that we don't, that doesn't get much press these days? Um, yeah, that's a very, um, it's a really interesting issue actually. And to answer, I just want to briefly take us back to 1915 when Italy joined the war, because there's always been this division. Essentially, Italy joined the war to gain the complete national territory. That's the theory. But there were two separate ways of understanding what that might mean. One is the more nationalist, as we understand it today, expansionist view of we want to build a greater Italy, we want to you know, grow our nation, spread our national borders. So it was a relatively aggressive outlook right from the start. But the other is this view that was embraced by a lot of Democrats, a lot of uh, supporters of a republic, which of course was a very minority position. Italy is a monarchy at this time, but there are republican groups. 
<coughs> excuse me there's a lot of left-wing interventionists in 1915 and they want a democratic self-determination so they want places where italians live to be incorporated so that we have a complete national state but they do not want any kind of expansionist imperialist system in which other groups are being forced to live under italian rule and a lot of very high profile leaders of the intervention movement in 1915 including for example cesare battisti who actually dies for the cause he's from the city of trento and he's uh, he's executed by the austrians becomes a national hero he doesn't want the sud tirol he says no that's not italian territory italians don't live there he's from trento he says yes trento should be italian and he's willing to die for that cause but we should not be seizing territories that italians don't really live in so this is a, a lesser known strand of this nationalist drive for the war a kind of uh, really in line with the 19th century italian unification movement this idea of democratic nationalism sounds like a real contradiction to us today but in the 19th century that made sense and so there is this kind of left wing element which bisolati then in 1919 tries to put forward again and people don't want to hear it at that stage okay well, i think we'll we will um, wrap things up for today that was an absolutely fascinating kind of deep dive let's say into some of the topics that we talk about in our episode and also to some topics that um, that we don't have the time to get into online so i want to thank you very much dr wilcox for talking to us today and before we go if you want to let our listeners know um, if you have a title for the upcoming book or when it's going to come out or where they can get their hands on it then uh, feel free to let them know thank you um, i haven't finished writing it yet but it will be out in a year or two it will be the italian empire in the great war with oxford university press and uh, i'll let you know when it's ready and my first book on morale in the italian army is out now in paperback great then uh, thank you very much for speaking with us and thank you. we will be in touch all right Thanks again to uh, Dr. Wilcox for taking the time on a Saturday uh, to, to record this with us. Um, we will put some links to her books uh, under the episode when it comes out. Uh, you can also follow her on Twitter. And that was basically our Italy coverage for this month. But as we hinted already in the beginning, we also go back to Russia, uh, so to speak, to the polar bears. But they're not very cuddly, are they? Uh, no, it was not a cuddly experience for the American troops who were sent to the Arctic. There were some in Murmansk uh, alongside the, the British, uh, but most of the Americans were sent to Arhangelsk, which um, is not the easiest place to pronounce or imagine where it is. But uh, Usually it's just called Archangel, I think. Archangel? Yeah, okay. I wasn't sure if it was Archangel or Archangel, but... Uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure where the name came from, but I'm sure uh, not many of the poor American doughboys who were sent up there were feeling very angelic about the situation. Um, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there because one of the topics that we touch on very briefly in the episode to show an example, but one of the topics that interested me the most were the interactions between the Russian peasants and then the interventionist uh, American soldiers and the British and French as well. 
And uh, there are some really, really interesting anecdotes. The, the soldiers, in a way, were, had a lot of trouble understanding the Russians. They didn't have the same cultural concepts of uh, certain behavior or, or hygiene or military discipline and that sort of thing, which led to some uh, conflicts, but also some interesting uh, intercultural experiences. That might not be the word they would have chosen at the time, but that might be what we call it today. They participated in religious ceremonies, they witnessed all sorts of local uh, village activities, and they felt a lot of sympathy for the living situation of the, of the local people, because the poverty was quite extreme, the health situation was really bad. The, I remember reading in one chapter about the American medical services that they were treating dozens and dozens of villagers who were dying of influenza, dying of pneumonia, uh, living with very little food. The children were trying to make food and soup for the parents who were sick because there's absolutely no health services. I don't know, I sort of felt that that side of the story was an interesting one. And, so, uh, and uh, the American Red Cross was very present. Uh, they, had a, they had a military field hospital there uh, with, the, with the expeditionary force. The Red Cross, uh, as far as I know, was, yes, it was very present in terms of bringing food aid and shipments to different parts of the country, but of course they had, they had limitations based on the Bolshevik zone. Yeah, I, controlled zone. I, yeah. I, whenever I go through the archives, I see a lot of pictures, uh, not just in Archangel, uh, but also in uh, other places. I think they were also in Siberia, especially uh, yeah. Siberia, and they, but they were also special uh, present in uh, southern Russia, basically uh, in the Don Don regions and everything. They also were present in Armenia at the time. And everything I think that's like. Uh, basically kind of maybe continuation of this international relief kind of situation. We also mentioned food shipments to, to Yugoslavia and everything, for example. So that's uh, something that gets forget forgotten sometimes, but there was already a tendency to have some international aid going uh, for, for, because hunger was a very present problem. Well, without American food aid, uh, a lot of people in Europe would have been in a much worse, worse uh, situation than they already were in the, in the first uh, post-war period, or the post-armistice period. Um, I guess another thing that struck me was in the, in the excerpts from diaries and, and letters that I read in some of the uh, sources for this episode, that, of course, the soldiers, not only the Americans, but uh, I read particularly about them, just, they, they just didn't want to be there. They, they were doing their duty, they were doing their job as soldiers, they were following their orders most of the time. There were some cases of, uh, let's call it mild mutiny, uh, because they were so frustrated at being there for so long, being there after the November 11th armistice. Um, and that, that, the way they expressed those feelings is not so different than some of the things I've read in contemporary media about how some soldiers feel uh, unsure about the mission in Afghanistan or Iraq or other places where um, American and British troops have intervened. The rank and file are not always sure what the, what the real reason is why they're there, for better or for worse. And this is certainly a sentiment that kept coming back uh, amongst the American soldiers. They did not want 
to be there and to continue being involved in the fighting and to continue suffering from the absolutely terrible winter conditions there. Yeah. And that probably also, of course, directly translates to any kind of ability to conclude combat operations. Uh, There's no end to it. Because what are you going to do? You're going to take your, your 8,000 or so men that you have uh, in, the, in the several hundred thousand square kilometers around Archangel and you're going to march on Moscow and, and overturn the Bolsheviks? It's not possible. So you're, you're in a bit of a limbo and the soldiers know that and they don't want to kill and be killed while freezing uh, in this sort of limbo where they're not sure of the purpose for all of this. Yeah, well, certainly quite interesting. Another interesting aspect of the Russian Civil War. Uh, we are kind of optimistic that later in the summer we will have a closer look at the situation in the Baltics, for example. Um, it's, you know, it's, we saw that it's a popular topic uh, with the viewers and our supporters, and we will definitely explore it much, much more and probably do more of these zoom in kind of things where we take a look at. Uh, let's say sub-conflicts of the thing that is called the Russian Civil War. It makes it sometimes a bit easier to maybe explain a bit more background, political machinations, and I mean it wasn't all fighting and uh, combat all the time. Um, last, thought, last bit of history before we go is uh, we had a very interesting question that um, you uh, had some, some thoughts on by our fan Muhammad Imran, who basically asked um, now, in hindsight, it seemed that nobody wanted uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the first place. Because now that we have, we have all these follow-up nations and they broke up and they were perceived as very incompetent at warfare and everything. Um, so, who wanted the Austro-Hungarian Empire? Well, uh, this, this to me is a fascinating topic because... Um, in my own uh, research, I, I had to read a little bit about uh, some of the foreign policy approach. Everybody assumed that Austria-Hungary, in the first few years of the war, uh, until uh, late 1917, early 1918, the assumption was that it would, it would exist as a state, even if the Central Powers were defeated, that Austria-Hungary would still exist as an entity, as a sovereign Entity because in the it international had so system. for quite some time. Because, yeah, it had, well, in its current form since 1867, but if you go back to lands ruled cohesively by the Habsburg dynasty, I mean, then we're talking many centuries, right? So no one uh, really went into the war in 1914 from the Allied powers, even Italy in 1915, saying to themselves, yeah, we're going to break this whole thing up. Um, in retrospect, because we sort of have this reflex of looking at history through a nation-state lens, it almost seems natural what happened. And of course, there were quite a lot of people in uh, the minority communities in the Austro-Hungarian Empire who were hoping that such a thing would happen, but by no means all of them. There's a really interesting uh, approach, in particular by a historian named uh, Peter Judson, who studied attitudes towards nationalism amongst the minorities of some of the minorities in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And uh, he found, for example, that people who were 
in the professions, more educated, more literate, so the ones who produce the written sources that we read today, newspapers and speeches and this sort of thing, they were disproportionately nationalistic in favor of breaking it up and nation states or what have you. But the much larger proportion of the population who were not so educated or maybe illiterate peasants and so on, it wasn't as important a topic to them as, for example, their religion or their local circumstances. So a great example he gives is along the sort of language border, if you will, between Slovene speakers and German speakers, people switched back and forth between identities. When the government inspector would come for the determining you know, which schools should teach in which languages, his idea is, I want to categorize them into these two groups, and then we have our two separate schools, and everybody can be nice and nationalistic in their own school, and that's that. But in order to get certain school funding and certain advantages of where they send their kids, people would just say, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a German speaker, or well, I'm a Slovene speaker, because they were equally at ease in both the languages and felt that it wasn't the determining category for their uh, identity. They were navigating through the system, so exactly. to speak. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, uh, to make a long story short, in response to the question, there were some people who, I don't know if we can say they, they desperately wanted the Austro-Hungarian Empire to continue, but who were at least okay with it and weren't totally on the other side. There was certainly a, a group of bureaucrats, aristocrats, and army officers who did want the empire to continue. They felt like they are the guardians of the empire, that the empire gives them uh, meaning and gives their institutions meaning. So uh, they were certainly crushed when the empire collapsed. And I think uh, in my book recommendations, I mentioned the Radetzky March, which is, uh, which is an example of uh, a fictional example of one of these uh, one of these families. I just want to add uh, two more, my two cents, so to speak, to that topic. I haven't studied this topic in depth, uh, but I was approached several times over the course of our show uh, where we often talked about, for example, Konrad von Herzendorf and the, as I said, uh, Austro-Hungarian military incompetence, which you know has, of course, some merit because some of their campaigns were very disastrous. But on the other hand, is also often, um, let's say, overemphasized by the German ally because it was a very easy scapegoat to tell the Austrians, for example, during the Brusilov offensive, you know, give them 500 kilometers of front line to guard and then complain that they can't hold the line. Anyway, <clears throat> some people approached me and said, there is a, apparently a certain new uh, school of thought among some historians across the former area of the Austro-Hungarian Empire who basically start studying these kind of aspects that you started talking about now. Also in regards to, um, I mean, this has been said about several empires throughout history. It has also has been said about the Ottoman Empire before World War I, that so-and-so is the, uh, the sick man of Europe and that, you know, because of economic decline, their breakup or dissolution was um, inevitable. But there is some economic data that actually suggests that by 1913, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which had been in a recession previously, was on an upswing again. Was recovering, yeah. Well, was recovering, and that uh, a lot of the 
uh, unhappiness and resent resentment towards the empire in the years leading up to the war more had to do with e economic recession than being particularly um, nationalistic or unnationalistic, which underlines what you just said about people navigating the system and making ends meet and then basically not caring if the emperor is called Franz Joseph or uh, Masaryk. <laughs> Right, and uh, to the topic of, of hunger playing a role, or economic conditions playing a role, there's a great book by Maureen Healy that tracks the decline in support for the Austro-Hungarian state in, amongst the population of Vienna, and she ties it to how hungry they were. When food is coming, people are not so upset that there's a monarchy. Uh, when there's no food, people are upset at whoever's in charge, and it so happens that it's the Habsburgs and it's the Austrian Empire. So that, that did uh, play a role. And to the, to the topic, just briefly, to the topic of Austro-Hungarian military performance, I remember one of my professors at the University of Vienna framed it quite in a quite interesting way. He said, if you look at a snapshot in the fall of 1917, Austria-Hungary's war is basically won. Russia is out and has collapsed. Romania has been defeated, Serbia has been defeated, and Italy's been defeated, not conquered to 100%, but they've been pushed so far back or in such disarray that they're not threatening Austrian borders in any way. And I thought that was kind of an interesting little snapshot to take, uh, to think about uh, Austria-Hungary's war a little bit differently. Um, that's true. I mean, and then, but that also, of course, goes back to who, who takes the credit for all these kind of things, because I would... Certainly I, the Germans I, had I, a role I'm, to play. I'm sure that uh, the German generals... Uh, uh, I, I'm not saying they won it on their <laughs> own, but... Uh, no, but, but I mean, that's what you have allies for. Exactly. Anyway. All right, um, so this was uh, this month's Great War Supporter Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions about the production stuff that we talked in the beginning, any historical questions that we can dive into on the podcast, uh, or any episode suggestions for future topics that we should cover. Uh, just write them in the comments, drop me a message on Patreon, also trying my best to keep up with the comments on YouTube, uh, Facebook messages, etc. And uh, yeah, that was it. We'll see you next time. See you next time.